Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, we are joined by Kate Adelson, director of the Sierra Club Virginia chapter. They were kind enough to host VPR's executive editor, James Leckie, and associate editors, Henry Frost and Kevin Briner, for a wide-ranging interview touching on environmental activism and advocacy, alternative energy sources, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, economic and policy tools to combat global climate change, uh, among other things. Enjoy. All right, um, so my name is James Leckie. I'm the executive editor of the Virginia Policy Review. My name is Kevin Briner. I'm uh, an associate editor. I'm Henry Frost, associate editor. And my name is Kate Adelson. I am the director of the Sierra Club Virginia chapter. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so for our first question, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you have experience as an organizer and a policy advocate on environmental issues. What are some of the first environmental issues you advocated for? Sure. So I have been working on environmental issues for about 10 years now. I actually started um, my career in activism working on international trade policy before I came to um, the climate action world and uh, worked there for several years after graduating from college at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I worked in Washington, D.C. for several years um, for an organization called Global Trade Watch, which is a part of Public Citizen, and um, have always been committed to sort of democratic values and really um, trying to facilitate um, a a vibrant democracy. And um, so I came to environmental work originally. um, I was spurred by um, the urge to fight uh, climate change and and address that major global issue, Um, and particularly because it was at the intersection of many issues that I cared about, um, human rights, civil rights, um, as well as environmental protection. Um, So my very first sort of full-time campaign was actually fighting to stop the largest coal-fired power plant ever proposed in the state of Virginia um, called the Surrey Coal-Fired Power Plant uh, down in the southeastern part of the state. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Do you know if... I know that something they talk about a lot, um, I used to work for another environmental group, Mm -hmm. um, that there haven't really been many new coal-fired power plants. Is that something that was more a major policy issue 10 years ago? Does that still come up fairly often, issues with, you know, current coal-fired power plants um, that are destructive to the local environment or propose new, like, power plants or different projects? Yeah, we're definitely not seeing many new proposals for uh, coal-fired power plants anymore. And um, primarily, I think that that's a result of the successes that um, the environmental movement and our allies um, across the country and, and frankly, around the world have seen. Um, Over the last couple of decades, there's been a concerted effort to ensure that there was a broad public awareness brought to how detrimental um, burning coal for electricity actually is, how detrimental it is for public health, how detrimental it is for the climate. And, um, and so as a result of that, um, we've definitely seen a decline in new proposals. Um, our campaign, the Beyond Coal campaign of the Sierra Club, has seen great success. Again, not on our own, working very much in tandem with allies across the country um, of uh, not only defeating proposed um, new coal-fired power plants, but also retiring numerous coal-fired power plants um, to clean up the communities that they've been in and, and you know, also, of course, um, make sure that um, we're not continuing that legacy of pollution. So based on your response there, uh, two, two questions that are sort of trade-offs. You talked about working on climate change and sort of this broad federal issue, um, but also, you know, as the director of the Virginia chapter, presumably there are sort of local environmental issues you're dealing with, local waterways, uh, issues like that. To, to what extent are you focused on uh, sort of global or national issues, and on what extent are you focused here in, in our backyard here in Virginia? 
Sure. So I'm really fortunate. I get uh, the opportunity to work with experts and environmental leaders at the local, state, and uh, federal level. Um, but our focus is um, really at the state level in Virginia primarily. Um, and that's a factor of our role in the structure of our organization. So we are a three-tiered um, structure at the Sierra Club. We're the National Sierra Club um, that guides all of our national um, campaigns and initiatives. And then chapters at the state level like right here where we're based in Richmond. Um, and then at the local level, we have um, what are typically called groups, um, which are all volunteer member-led um, entities. Uh, we have about a dozen here in Virginia um, that are even more localized and regional, bringing together usually a number of counties um, to ensure that they're protecting local land use and things like that. Um, so I would say the vast majority of our time is spent on state-level policymaking, um, but again, we're tied in very, very, um, you know, sort of integrally uh, tied into the work that's being done at the local level and at the national level because the constituencies are the same, right? They overlap. Um, so it, we, we really focus on empowering local citizen activism. And um, that can mean for some people getting involved at the county level, making sure that there are um, you know, resolutions that are being passed to advance the use of clean energy, for example, um, or blocking um, what folks see as harmful um, land use permits. Um, at the state level, of course, there's a lot of opportunity um, right now, especially, and I know we'll get into this later, um, talking about how we address um, big issues like climate change, but here within the state borders with the mechanisms that are available to us um, through um, state level authority. Uh, and then, of course, we also really want to make sure that folks are engaging at the federal level um, with the number of rollbacks we've seen, especially in the last few years. Um, there has been no, uh, no other time, I think, um, it could be argued that it's been more important for uh, citizens to be involved, contacting their members of Congress, uh, their state senators. Um, we've spent a lot of time making sure that um, the new uh, representatives in the House um, are really um, engaging with their constituents um, and continuing to try to push forward progress at the federal level. Um, when it comes to climate versus other issues, um, I would say that um, the vast majority of our time is being spent on climate and clean energy um, as just one organization in a whole network of groups that work on environmental policy in Virginia. Um, you know, each group sort of has found its own niche, and the Sierra Club really um, uh, specializes in climate and energy policies that are working to mitigate climate change. So that's a great segue. You, know, you mentioned energy and environmental policy. How do you think about environmental policy versus energy policy? Where do they overlap and where do they diverge? Sure. Um, today, more than ever, I would say that there is a great deal of overlap. Um, it is very difficult to draw out one from the other. Um, so uh, particularly because of the climate fight, but also because of um, the you know, important intersections between um, the way that we use energy and where the pollution, primary sources of pollution in our communities come from, um, and the ways in which we can limit those sources of pollution um, to protect our environment, um, there, there's just sort of numerous um, uh, areas where you can see that overlap. Um, so for example, right now, um, we are uh, fighting um, and in opposition to two large-scale proposed fracked gas pipelines. Um, you might have heard of the Atlantic Coast and Mountain Valley pipelines. Those are pipelines that are being proposed to bring fracked gas from the Ohio River Basin um, through Virginia and down into the Carolinas. And um, that is an effort um, by the industry to utilize another fossil fuel um, for um, the production of electricity um, primarily. And, um, you know, it is important, I think, to note that while there are massive climate uh, impacts um, that will result if those pipelines are um, built, there's also so many local impacts um, that will affect every single community along the way, and particularly communities that um, are being cited um, for large-scale projects like the compressor stations that are needed to move the gas through those pipelines, um, like uh, what is being proposed right now in Buckingham County, Virginia, uh, with the compressor station there for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Thank you. And just to talk a little bit more about the Coast Pipeline real quick, I saw in the Virginia Mercury uh, fairly recently that one of the companies that was working on the compressor stations was willing to offer a small amount of money, I think it was a million dollars or somewhere in that range, um, to the residents of that area to offset health effects. Um, 
caused by the materials going through um, the pipeline. Um, do you think that local areas have enough bargaining power to ever accept an offer like that to offset the health effects, or do you think it's something that really needs to be advocated at the state level, or is it something that really governments really shouldn't be in the business of doing? Um, it's something that um, economists sometimes look at as a negative externality, and then they try to allow for bargaining where people might be willing to accept some negative side effects um, in order for you know some financial gain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really tough question. You know, I think it's imperative that we allow local directly impacted communities to speak for themselves. And so um, I, I think that must come first and foremost. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's important to realize that the uh, industries that are proposing these projects are not being, um, are, do not put the interests of residents communities or um, any sort of um, publicly held institution or governance sort of consideration um, into their calculations. They are primarily looking at cost and um, the factors that are related to their their business, right? So um, I do think um, is an important role for government to play to consider what the impacts are, particularly insofar as um, our governments have the capability of requiring certain specifications for siting requirements and consideration of who and what is in an area that may make it eligible or ineligible for large-scale sources of pollution. And um, in this case, with the Buckingham Compressor Station, what we've seen is that, unfortunately, there has been uh, a a lot of uh, data and information that's been used that has been um, uh, either inaccurate or um, not complete. And what that has created is a very difficult situation where um, the local community is actually not being properly represented or protected. And as a result is having to rely on their own means of working with either the company directly um, or, um, or, or, or other entities to, to try to figure out how to protect themselves um, and um, are really at a disadvantage in doing so. Thank you. And um, I also wanted to ask you about the, uh, the regional greenhouse gas initiative, REGI. Uh, a lot of states in the Northeast have already joined REGI, um, but Virginia, it's something that kind of comes up year by year, um, and it was being discussed in this legislative session. Um, do you see this as an area where um, Virginia is really on the cusp and could join um, REGI given the right circumstances? Do you think it's just too politically divisive? Um, and it's something that it would be great for it to happen, but it's just not feasible at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is such a fascinating uh, time to be working on climate and energy policy um, just because of, of things like this, right? It, it's been really an exciting um, uh, General Assembly session earlier this year, which just wrapped up. And what we saw is that um, the uh, uh, unfortunately, th- this issue continues to be very politically polarizing. Um, and we see um, conservative lawmakers unwilling to um, break from uh, the Republican Party um, in almost every instance, um, and continuing to push an agenda that denies the realities of the threats of climate change um, and any attempts to address the pollution that's that's driving it. So uh, we saw that there was legislation that actually passed um, here in Virginia that would have denied the state the ability to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Uh, the governor did veto that legislation, but then in a sort of last-ditch effort to make sure that uh, Virginia is unable to uh, move forward with that kind of policy, um, they, uh, the, the uh, Republican majority put into the state budget um, uh, language that will prevent um, the, those policies from moving forward. And it's not only the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, but also the Transportation Climate Initiative um, and really other climate packs uh, as well uh, could be affected by it in the future. Um, but those are the two immediately on the table. And so um, right now, it looks like um, the governor has the authority um, to veto um, the language that was put into the state budget, um, and uh, we're very hopeful um, that he 
will follow through on that and continue with his commitment to climate leadership. Um, but on Friday, uh, we're actually going to see a vote by the State Air Pollution Control Board, which will allow the state to link with Reggie, um, whether or not uh, we you know, are able to work out those legislative concerns. Um, that is expected to move forward. The State Air Pollution Control Board has been involved in this process for quite some time. And um, so all indicators point to uh, their approval of that tomorrow. And uh, then um, if that is approved, um, we will actually move forward as a state with linking to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative effective January 1st, 2020. Great. Hello, listeners. This is Josh here with a quick update. We recorded this episode with the Sierra Club Virginia back in April 2019. Uh, During the episode, we discussed the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and the potential for Virginia to partner with it. However, the budget passed in the 2019 legislative session in Virginia contained language blocking such a partnership. Governor Northam declined to veto this line item, citing potential legal costs. And now back to the interview. Um, Yeah, so uh, the Sierra Club's uh, website right now, I think, uh, states that uh, you have a goal of reaching 100% renewable energy in Virginia by 2050. Uh, so how feasible do you think that goal is given uh, current circumstances, and do you think Reggie is a big enough step um, in that direction, or do you think there's a lot more that needs to be done? Certainly a lot more that needs to be done, yeah. Um, when you look at Virginia compared to other states, um, we are certainly behind, even just in our immediate region. You can see that North Carolina is leagues ahead of us in terms of clean energy adoption and things like that. And of course, policies pave the way for um, those uh, cleaner sources of energy to come online and replace the dirtier fuels that we've historically relied upon. Um, so I do think that we're going to need to see a lot more action there. Um, There are uh, also a lot of local initiatives right now that are continuing to show public support and demand for um, clean energy um, transition. And uh, so we have a campaign called 100% Virginia, um, where there are localities from all across the state that are advancing um, in the effort to fight climate change and and transition towards clean energy um, in their own ways. And uh, so we are hoping that there will be sort of an aggregate impact um, of that local organizing that will um, demonstrate to state-level lawmakers that there really is um, the need to move in that direction much more expeditiously and accelerate the transition to clean energy. And I should be clear, you know, it's really not only our electric sector, um, the transportation sector too um, has actually now surpassed um, the electric sector in terms of the total greenhouse gas emissions um, annually. And so we're going to need to really ratchet that down. Um, And there's a lot of opportunities there, um, too, with um, the move towards electric uh, vehicles and electrifying our transportation infrastructure, as well as increasing public transit and other um, sort of um, smart ways of improving our communities so that there's walkable, bikeable communities um, uh, that we, uh, you know, can enjoy. And uh, so I'm not sure if that answers your whole question, but I'm happy to, to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing um, I was kind of wondering, just building off that, it seems like there's a uh, this trend where the Democratic governor is willing to um, take steps on environmental reform, but the legislator is not. So when you're thinking about making these strides toward renewable energy by 2050, do you think you know the governor alone can get there, or do you think we really need the legislator uh, to get on board? You know, I really think it's imperative that we have bipartisan efforts to advance environmental protections of all kinds, but particularly on tackling climate change, because it really is too big for any one individual or decision maker or branch of government to tackle on their own. Um, It is really um, disconcerting how um, partisan and politicized um, efforts to address environmental impacts have become in recent decades. And uh, yet, I think that here in Virginia, we see a lot of reasons for optimism um, still to um, for us to get beyond that uh, divide, um, especially, you know, interestingly enough, with, with the, the controversial pipelines that we were just talking about. Um, we've seen numerous lawmakers that 
that are on uh, the you know uh, the right side or conservative side of politics, and uh, that are that are uh, you know taking it upon themselves to represent their constituents and ensuring that uh, property owners, land rights, you know, um, access to clean water um, and clean air um, are issues that they're talking about with their constituencies. So. Um, I'm hopeful that we will continue to be able to um, find uh, ways to work together uh, with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle um, to make sure that, that those protections are getting advanced, um, because we know that we have the tools and the technology today to have sustainable communities for decades and generations to come. It's just a matter of us um, figuring out, yeah, how to achieve those policy solutions that are going to get us there and, um, and, and support you know, strong and stable communities in the future. Thank you. And um, on policy solutions, um, do you think auction models or cap-and-trade models um, are one of the more effective ways to combat um, greenhouse gas emissions? Um, or do you think there's a certain policy model that's more effective? Um, I think, you know, this is one of many policy tools that are available um, to uh, reducing this harmful source of emissions. Um, certainly, when we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions as opposed to other forms of toxic um, air pollutants, um, it can be a little bit more difficult, um, you know, similar to methane, right, um, because of the numerous sources of that, um, that air pollution. Uh, so I think that it's important that we look at all the options on the table. Um, it's interesting for, for folks who are interested in history, you know, they would know that, you know, looking backwards, it was actually a Republican um, idea originally, um, this policy tool of, of cap and trade um, for uh, allowances for the pollution, um, carbon pollution um, that we see from major sources. And, um, you know, that, uh, the, again, the, you know, the way that the political sort of um, landscape has evolved. Um, you know, a lot of folks, I think, may not be aware of that. But um, but nowadays, I think it's something that um, is a great option because of the um, benefit of having a number of states that have already been utilizing that program, um, you know, namely through the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, but there are others as well. Um, and those have proven that you can do this, you can limit these harmful emissions in a way that's not going to devastate the economy. And of course, a lot of the sort of scare tactics that have historically been used um, by industries that produce this pollution um, have, have not proven to come true. And uh, those, you know, those fears that have been instilled, um, you know, really have lasting impact on policy decisions. And so I think it's great that we can use solutions like that, um, that have been proven, um, that we can actually have data to track um, and see how they've worked and where there have been weaknesses in those policies as well, so that we can hopefully improve on them in the future. Uh, on that same note of policies, carbon taxes. What are your thoughts on carbon taxes and sort of the, the role that those can play? There again, I think, you know, it's, it's just a different tool to achieve the same outcome. And we have, um, uh, you know, we have to work within the uh, political realities of the situ situation that we're in. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of times when we talk about new taxes, um, it's virtually a non-starter um, with a lot of folks who are um, conservative, especially, you know, lawmakers here in Virginia and other states. We've seen those, um, those attempts fall flat um, at the federal level as well. There hasn't been um, a lot of traction there. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not, um, doesn't have the potential to be an effective tool. And I think a lot of times with policy, um, within the environmental field, as well as in other fields, you know, the devil is in the details. And so if we can develop policies that address the, um, you know, specific needs and nuances of the area, uh, state, or, or, or nation that they're being applied in, um, that's what's going to uh, have the best result for everyone. Uh, so you mentioned that um, tools like the carbon tax are not really gaining traction at the federal level. Um, do you think that states um, are capable of combating ch climate change on their own, or do you think the federal government um, is really essential in tackling that issue and getting other nations like uh, the EU, um, I guess a collection of nations, uh, the EU, China, and India um, on board in tackling climate change? 
Sure. Well, there is no doubt that states have um, plenty of tools at their disposal to advance progress on this issue. And um, I think it's imperative that we uh, continue to exercise all of those policy options that are available. Um, Certainly, though, because we're talking about a global challenge, we need to have federal action and we need to have international action. Um, And we've seen, um, certainly with the the most recent um, IPCC report, uh, the International Policy um, uh, uh, Panel on Climate Change, excuse me, um, you know, that we have uh, just a little over a decade to really turn things around globally. And uh, what I think is important is that we um, take responsibility for what we can do and and hopefully, you know, um, policymakers don't just try to pass the buck and wait for the next person or the next administration to do it Um, because um, there, you know, there, there is also, uh, uh, right way to say this, but um, there, um, I think are few people that would dispute that um, the United States has been the dominant economic player on the global stage um, in the past, um, you know, decades. And so, um, for the United States to not be taking a central role in leading on the fight to address climate change and identify solutions um, is very damaging, and um, and it's hurting the momentum of that effort. Um, and it also means that um, there are fewer opportunities to have, um, you know, sort of stronger collaborative solutions achieved. Um, So uh, I certainly hope that we'll continue to see more progress at the federal level, um, but we're not going to stop working at the state and even the local level um, because, uh, yeah, movements, um, uh, you know, you know, collective social change movements are historically um, the most successful at achieving policy change. And um, that's what we're in the business of doing. And we're seeing a lot of success. Great. So uh, zooming back down um, to the local level, um, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, um, which we uh, talked about earlier, raises a number of environmental quality and environmental justice concerns. Um, And recently uh, we saw in the news that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline LLC has recently announced that the completion of the project is going to be delayed um, until 2021. So uh, what is the Sierra Club Virginia going to be doing uh, in that period of time to kind of push back on the pipeline? Sure. Um, So we have been relentlessly opposing this pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline um, since each of them were originally um, introduced or proposed. And um, we've been working with uh, allies at the local, state, and regional levels um, to fight them in a variety of ways. I think right now where we're at, um, the majority of that is in the courtroom and um, on, out on the streets. Um, so uh, there are numerous legal battles that are still going on. Um, we have had some significant victories, which has been uh, really helpful in uh, ensuring that the um, companies that are proposing these pipelines are following state and federal rules um, and uh, protecting our wild spaces, protected public lands, um, the Appalachian Trail, um, and you know, and other key corridors for access to nature and wildlife in our region, um, as well as, um, as as local historic places and um, places of cultural relevance. Um, so there's there are numerous um, sort of fronts of, of this fight, I would say, and um, well. Uh, we we will um, be continuing to work on those those legal um, uh, strategies, and then in addition, continuing to mobilize um, grassroots opposition to the pipelines um, in every venue, essentially that it's it's possible to do so. Um, and uh, I think it's been really inspiring to see um, many folks from different walks of life coming together um, to share a common goal of opposing and. Um, and defeating these pipelines, um, you know, you see a lot of folks in particular coming together around um, the common value of clean water and access to clean water is so critical, of course, for life. We saw it really, um, you know, have a, have a big impact in the Dakota um, access pipeline fight and us a few years ago. Um, and it's something that is, you know, um, is, is really bringing people together. So as we move away from natural gas and coal, what are some of the more promising alternative sources of energy um, in Virginia that we can start moving towards? 
Sure. Um, so a number, but some of the most exciting, I think, are the potential for offshore wind. Um, we now have two test turbines off Virginia's coast and um, are looking uh, at being the first state to have offshore wind in federal waters in the United States. And um, again, there we, we can still look to other projects um, and successes uh, to learn from. So there is offshore wind capacity now off of Rhode Island um, and other states that have um, areas that have been uh, made available for offshore wind leases um, in uh, state waters uh, are moving forward. So that industry really looks like it's taking off in this country and, of course, still a, a bit behind um, you know, our, uh, our partners uh, in Europe, but um, huge amount of potential there for clean energy in terms of total megawatts, as well as potential for um, real you know, sort of uh, change in terms of being a, a leading um, state in the, um, in the hub for all of the parts and um, supplies and everything that would go along with that industry. Um, and then solar, of course, too. Um, we're finally starting to see um, Virginia sort of uh, uh, has been hit with this wave of clean energy and solar is going up all over. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, we're still very far behind uh, neighboring states. Um, North Carolina has is just leagues ahead of us. Um, but we are starting to see some positive moves in the policy world that are breaking down barriers to solar in Virginia, um, particularly distributed generation of solar. Um, so, you know, you, we've got the big utility companies like Dominion Energy um, that are um, starting to pursue more large-scale uh, or utility-scale solar projects, um, but um, their involvement and influence in the state legislature in years past has really um, been detrimental in uh, allowing others to take advantage of clean energy opportunities um, so we're continuing to make that a priority, and we really think that that's going to change the landscape in the years ahead. Um, and then, of course, there are many other um, areas that um, that are uh, going to be of significance um, as we move forward. Storage, in particular, energy storage is um, of great interest to um, to those who are in the energy field right now. Um, and there's opportunities with geothermal and some onshore wind in Virginia. Um, so uh, I think it's really um, going to be exciting to see see um, those take hold over the next few years. And then we, we talked a little bit about um, electrification of our transportation sector as well. Um, and so there's a huge amount of opportunity there um, in the years ahead. So I want to dig a little deeper on a few of those individual technologies that you talked about and get your thoughts on them. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned offshore wind. Uh, I know that some folks f who approach this from an investment lens have concerns with offshore wind because of uh, sort of increased risk, both due to the, you know, salt and, and sea air making it, you know, making corrosion more of a problem than onshore wind. Uh, and, I, you know, I think a lot of folks that analyze this from like a risk return perspective see uh, increased risk and, and so are hesitant to commit funds to that. Do you see that from the, from the private sector or do you just not see that as a problem as Virginia sort of moves forward in this space? You know, in Virginia right now, um, which is really, you know, where what I can speak to, um, what we've seen is holding things up is not the industries um, that, that specialize in building wind projects, but really from the, the process um, and the, um, the company that owns the, the lease um, for Virginia's offshore wind area, which is Dominion Energy, um, not moving forward at uh, the pace that they are capable of moving forward um, with, uh, since they have, have were granted that that lease. Um, and I think, you know, in part, there is some, uh, you know, reasonable sort of uh, delay that has happened because this is the first project that would be in federal waters. And so there are, um, you know, just unprecedented, um, you know, sort of processes and things like that um, that need to be dealt with. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, that is a company that really relies heavily on fracked gas and is, um, you know, pursuing its own business interests in, in trying to um, secure um, generation projects that are going to benefit its business model. Um, but as far as, you know, the other risks and things go, um, again, I think, you know, it, 
we're in a place now where there are many other com- countries that have moved forward with the development of offshore wind projects um, and have had some time to test um, you know different um, structures you know different um, uh, types of um, foundations and some of the other technical elements of the wind turbines themselves um, and and even more research has been done um, you know with respect to um, you know uh, making sure that they can withstand large scale scale storms uh, withstand large scale storms um, and you know and uh, yeah all of the you know weather impacts and things like that that they'll be susceptible to um, so uh, certainly uh, there is risk as as in you know any form of large-scale energy generation um, but that isn't something that we're hearing a lot about um, in terms of the policy landscape great and shifting to uh, nuclear energy there's obviously a divide among environmentalists on nuclear energy. It's not one of the primary sources in you know Virginia that you pointed to. Um, doesn't commit to carbon dioxide, but obviously there's the pollution concern, the radio uh, radiation concern, and then obviously just sort of the long-term degradation because you know it just sits there sort of forever. Where where do you stand on nuclear energies? What are your thoughts? Is it worth the sort of um, ecological costs? Sure. Well, you know, I think it's important to understand what the energy landscape is in Virginia right now. And currently, nuclear plays a very large uh, role in, in providing um, the energy um, for Virginians, particularly in Dominion service territory. Um, so we have, I think, at least a third of our energy that's currently supplied um, by nuclear power, um, and then a, a significant and, and growing amount um, that is uh, dependent upon fracked gas, um, very small percentage that um, is currently being generated from renewable energy sources. Um, So um, the Sierra Club is not opposing existing nuclear facilities. We are not in a position right now that we feel it's a priority to to try to close those facilities down, um, as you pointed out, because of the fact that they are not emitting um, uh, carbon pollution um, or other greenhouse gas emissions, and, and at a time when we really feel it's essential to prioritize prioritize fighting climate change, um, we, we don't feel that that's the most productive use of our um, energy and resources. But um, the, the points that you bring up about, you know, environmental um, concerns are very real and have been, of course, um, you know, a, a, a major part of the discussions about that po- um, energy option um, in decades past. So um, we certainly don't um, support the expansion of any of those nuclear facilities. Um, or the extension of their um, uh, operating permits because we feel that it is important to recognize um, that the harmful waste that comes from those facilities is something that um, will live in perpetuity. And um, so uh, hope that we can uh, see a transition to renewable energy resources that um, you know don't require a fuel source that has to be extracted from the ground. The fuel is free with you know solar and wind um, and other renewable sources, and ultimately have uh, very long, useful lives um, that they can provide um, sustainable energy that um, won't bring harm to any of our communities. Great. And on a similar note, what are your thoughts on uh, biomass energy? You know, is it a clean energy given that, you know, sort of the, the flip side of that, right? It is producing carbon emissions, uh, doesn't necessarily have the radiation concerns. Um, what are your thoughts on, on biomass? Sure. So biomass is uh, a, a difficult one, uh, but it, it absolutely is not a clean source of energy. Anytime you have combustion and you're burning something, um, you're going to have negative effects on the environment that result from that process. So um, we do not support um, the use of biomass or the designation of biomass as a clean energy. Um, and I think it's important for folks to be aware that um, currently Virginia's definition of renewable energy does include biomass and a number of other things that um, groups like ours dispute as being clean renewable sources of energy um, and hope in the years ahead that we can uh, revise that language of our state code because we feel that it misrepresents um, the uh, the impacts to the environment. Um, and in fact, um, you know, we're just bringing it back to um, the uh, Reggie uh, item that we were talking about earlier, um, we um, are the draft um, proposed standard um, that will be uh, voted on tomorrow by the State Air Pollution Control Board does not 
include biomass um, in the generation facilities that would be covered by that cap and trade program. And uh, we think that that is a, a missed opportunity because um, were it covered, it would uh, be counted uh, among the polluting sources um, in the state. And, um, and to not cover it means that there will be that many more emissions that are not getting um, you know, uh, addressed by the policy solution that's being implemented. Thank you. And you also mentioned that Virginia uses a significant amount of natural gas, um, and it seems to be doing so increasingly. Um, and I at least know just from backhand knowledge that it seems like natural gas is sort of a replacement fuel for coal as some of these power plants shut down. Um, a lot of people look at natural gas as kind of like a stepping stone to clean energy or that it's cleaner than coal, so it's better. Um, but there are also some issues um, with pollution, of the water table and things like that. Um, is Sierra Club Virginia advocating on any issues at this point to try to mitigate those effects? That's a really great question. You know, I think it is broadly underappreciated how detrimental um, fracked gas is to our environment and methane emissions uh, as well. You know, methane, also known as gas, um, is an extremely potent greenhouse gas and very, very detrimental um, in the fight against climate change. Um, so. Um, I think that um, what I can say is is that it is is not and should not be considered a stepping stone or a repl cleaner replacement. Um, studies are increasingly showing that um, the emissions that result from the full life cycle of using fracked gas um, could be as much if not more destructive than burning coal um, and using coal for electricity. Uh, so it's really important, I think, that folks um, you know, continue to, to learn about and understand the dynamics of fracked gas. I think a lot of folks have probably seen um, some of the um, concerning visuals of people being able to light their faucet on fire, right, uh, near fracking sites and things like that. It's certainly devastated parts of um, Pennsylvania and uh, Ohio and West Virginia and areas that um, really, um, you know, have um, large-scale reserves um, of, of shale formations. Um, and, and I think uh, what I would say about where we're at in Virginia right now is that um, gas is continuing to have a toxic um, effect not only our, on our environment, but also on our politics um, because of this um, lack of understanding of the, um, the harmful effects of using gas. Um, we continue to see lawmakers, um, you know, supporting um, the shift to more uh, use of gas for electricity and, and other things. And, and that is um, taking the place of renewable energy um, coming online and, and being a clean, sustainable source of generation that does not um, you know, bring with it those types of impacts. Um, so right now, um, uh, you may, may be aware that um, Dominion Energy, our, our largest utility company in Virginia, um, is required to uh, periodically submit what's called an integrated resource plan, um, shows the next 15 years of generation that the utility is um, uh, planning for and how they're planning to provide the electric generation uh, that's needed for their customers. And um, the, for the first time in Virginia's history, the State Corporation Commission actually rejected their proposal and sent them back to the drawing board because um, they hadn't included um, a number of things that had been requested by the commission and also because their demand forecasts, you know, how much energy they um, per, um, uh, projected needing to provide for customers um, was vastly inflated. And so I think it is also important for folks to note um, and, and look into um, Dominion Energy in particular um, as, a, as a major player in Virginia politics and as the largest utility company in Virginia um, and supplier of electricity, um, you know, the role that they play is enormous. And, um, they are predominantly a gas company. They are um, a, a large-scale company that's regional, that's well beyond Virginia, and, and the Dominion Virginia Energy Company is, is a subsidiary 
um, of that larger um, corporate entity. Um, so that makes for a very interesting policy landscape in Virginia. Um, and, and we are seeing Dominion continue to propose new gas-fired power plants um, at an alarming rate, um, despite the fact that um, a lot of what you would see um, them put out in their, um, you know, uh, consumer materials and things like that suggests that they are going green and responding to customers' demands that we have cleaner forms of energy. So I, I understand the, the goal to bring on more renewable energy uh, capacity and to phase out uh, natural gas and, and other fossil fuels. Talk a little bit more about that transition. You know, if we were to shut down all sources of, uh, you know, dirty energy, if you will, natural gas, coal, tomorrow. Does Virginia have the capacity to, you know, switch that over to renewables tomorrow? And if not, how do you balance that sort of fight to push out natural gas with an understanding that, like, there needs to be some sort of a transition period? Sure. So um, Virginia's energy market is part of a much larger regional um, grid, electric grid, that is um, regulated by an entity called PJM. And, and that electric grid um, is required to be able to support the total load of all customers within the region. And so um, within that, our utility companies operate and, su and supply energy to the grid with power plants or renewable energy sources um, and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and ultimately, there is, it is not feasible to turn off the switch um, on our existing power plants and, and, and you know, especially like the, the dirtier forms of, um, of electric generation that we're working to phase out. Um, so um, I think that's an, an important thing to note because, um, again, I think, you know, historically there's been a lot of scare tactics used to suggest that um, environmentalists are not advocating for realistic solutions and that um, we may have um, really um, harmful impacts if we were to lose power, right, and not have enough generation to cover all of um, the needs that we have in our state or region. And, um, and that's just not the case. Um, so we have um, uh, what we're proposing and, and the sort of campaigns that we work on are to achieve a transition over time. And as I mentioned before, like with respect to nuclear, for example, you know, a, and the same is true of, of gas and coal um, uh, and even oil-fired power, although that's not as typical in our state. Um, we are advocating for no new facilities that rely on fossil fuels to be established in our state and for no new fossil fuel infrastructure that would supply and create more demand for those facilities to be established like the fracked gas pipelines. And I think that's a really important distinction because it's not about going backward and, and, and taking offline all of those traditional generation sources starting today or tomorrow or, or, or whenever, um, but rather ensuring that all of the new building that we're doing, all of the new generation that we're bringing online is clean energy. And, and, and working gradually to retire those facilities that are our oldest and our dirtiest facilities as quickly as possible. Um, so we do have a number of coal plants that are still in operation in Virginia. Um, and some, uh, you know, other states have more than that, uh, more than we have. And, and so we are sort of in a, um, a, I guess you could call it like a race to, to try and figure out how do we um, move towards a clean energy future um, and at a rate that is sort of as fast as possible, but still is going to provide for our electric um, generation needs and, again, in other sectors for our transportation needs and the like. And um, uh, the, the sort of theory and um, work that a lot of folks are doing are uh, in the area of what's called just transition. And what that means to us is making sure that we're working with every stakeholder in our communities to figure out what that path looks like. Um, and so it has to involve the people who are in the workforce that work in coal-fired power, in you know gas-fired power, um, and nuclear and others, and um, you know even um, in far southwest Virginia in the coal fields. Um, 
It also has to do with um, engaging the folks that are on the front lines of the pollution sources that have been, you know, um, in communities in the state in some cases for decades. Um, you know, we have coal plants that have been around 50 years or more, and there are communities that have been suffering the health impacts, um, you know, that live in those communities, and um, they need to be involved, and it needs to be uh, a comprehensive um uh, process, I think, where all of those stakeholders have a voice at the table. And um, I think that today we're actually seeing a lot of um, uh, uh, promise in that area. Um, we've seen um, from uh, the governor, for example, um, a renewal of the state's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And um, there um, just um, uh, yesterday was an announcement from the State Department of Environmental Quality that they would be pursuing a study um, to further look into environmental justice impacts in Virginia. Um, and, 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 you know, understanding what the impacts are will make us better equipped to find solutions for the future. What in the next 10 years is the policy frontier that you're most optimistic about? And what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for Sierra Club Virginia um, in the near future? So that's two questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, the one that I'm most optimistic about Um, that's a tough one. I, I guess I really think that um, identifying ways that we can um, properly address the intersection of environmental and energy, uh, you know, policies, um, as well as um, economic policies, um, is where I, you know, I think that there is a great amount of opportunity. And Virginia has historically been known as a business-friendly state. Um, we certainly don't have some of the best worker rights protections as a result of that. Um, but I think that um, that balance is going to be essential for um, our state moving forward. And um, I think that um, it is an area that is sort of overdue for action. Uh, because we have um, so many um, active and engaged um, residents and businesses in Virginia that are really um, even getting continuing to get more involved in um, the policy um, that is being shaped, you know, year in and year out uh, as the General Assembly meets um, for its long and short sessions. Um, so I, I think that that's a really promising area, um, and it's something that everyone, you know, would benefit from because certainly we're always going to have an economy and we're always going to have an environment, and as long as there is policy, I think we're going to need to continue to try to um, make headway on um improving the policies that affect people's lives um, in, in those areas and, and where they intersect is, is just ripe for, um, um, for further um, progress. Um, as far as the Sierra Club Virginia chapter, you know, I would say for us that the biggest challenge is um, continuing to um, be able to reach people and mobilize people in strategic ways in the policy decisions that are before us because um, there's so many new tools and um, uh, mediums for information about policy and policy options and perspectives on policy and issues writ large. And um, I think that it's important for us to, um, you know, continue to, to evolve with the times and make sure that, um, uh, you know, young people and, um, and, and others who are interested in being active in the policy landscape um, you know, have um, access to good information and are able to um, identify what is the, the best way for them to get involved and, and be active and, and have a meaningful part in um, shaping that policy themselves. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. You can follow VPR on Twitter at VA Policy Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. Links can be found in the show notes to this episode. Editing for this episode was done by yours truly. Our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.